For those who are visitors today, set a little context um, for the message. And um, we're looking at characters in the New Testament primarily. And some of us have characters which are named and some have characters unnamed. Um, I am been assigned the task of talking about the centurion from Luke chapter 7. And um, let's just take a moment to ask the Lord to bless his word again. Father, we pause and say thank you. We recognize afresh that your word is um, it's awesome. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, it pierces. It uh, transforms. It uh, changes us from glory to glory. And Lord, we pray that your word will be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path even this morning that our hearts may be encouraged in you and that we may go away uh, not only better in uh, our relationship with you, uh, but as well um, strengthened in the inner person. Lord, we need a strong and uh, courageous people of God. Help us to be that people, Lord, we pray. Thank you again for your Son, our Savior. May he receive the glory in his name. Amen. The uh, passage that we're going to be looking at today is found in Luke chapter 7. But you may also want to turn to the uh, account that's also found in Matthew's account. Matthew's account is from uh, verses 5 uh, through 13. And that is in chapter 8 of Matthew. So we have two separate accounts of the uh, passage that's in front of us. So I, I would suggest you just keep a bookmark or some sort of a, a place that you can just flip back and forth for that. And uh, I'm bringing up uh, uh, something that could be, um, I think it's important that we recognize right from the very beginning, and that is there's lots of debate about the Bible. There are those who would claim that the Word of God can't be trusted um, that, in fact, the skeptics uh, go with the assumption that, indeed, not only is there, are there errors in the Bible, but that the Bible is uh, full of errors and the skeptics' role is to seek out those errors and, and destroy the Word of God. The Christian, on the other hand, is not immune to recognizing that there are difficult passages in the Bible, but that those difficult passages fit under the category of difficulties for us. They're not difficulties for God. Now, God has no difficulties with his word. He doesn't lie. His word is truth. John 17 tells us, uh, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so we are comfortable with saying there are no errors in the scriptures, whether it be history or science or, for that matter, uh, errors in logic. However, there are errors in our brains. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that happen. You were uh, sitting at, oh, some of you seem to recognize errors in the brain's comment, so I'm glad to see there's a few. Um, for those of you who are still waking up, that's okay. There's more coffee down at the other end, and uh, you can probably pick up a cup. If you need to leave right now to get one, that's okay too. Um, the, the errors in the brain, have you never stopped and, at an intersection and you uh, look to your right, Nothing. You look to your left, nothing. 
you pulled out, and as you pulled out, you looked to your right again. Sometimes, you, you know, we jumped the gun a little bit. And all of a sudden, there's this big black van that goes by in front of you. You go, where did that come from? I never saw it. And of course, the person that was in the passenger seat was going in horror as you started to pull into the intersection because they were watching this big black van barreling down the highway and you had no idea. Now, why was that? Well, it might have been the fact that you had a, a certain part of your car that blocked the vision of that, that black van. And so you were looking and what you saw was legitimately no vehicles approaching. But the person who was looking straight out that window without the obstacle of something that was blocking your view was thankful that you stopped. And, uh, and you were too. So we have errors in our thinking. We have errors in our logic. Uh, the scripture is very clear. The Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. God is infinitely smarter. We need to keep being reminded of that because pride is something we all struggle with. Well, I struggle with that. I'm not going to talk about you, but we, all, we, we do struggle with it. In Luke chapter 7, we have the account that's also found in Matthew chapter 7. And there's some that would say, oh man, those two, or Matthew chapter 8, sorry. Those Two chapters just, they don't make sense. Like, they're, they're talking differently. So, let's have a look at what they say. Well, first of all, let's look at the Word of God for a brief moment because I want to reemphasize that God doesn't lie. So, if you're one of those Christians who says, I, I can accept that there are errors in the Bible, then you have a problem with the verses that say, He does not lie. And so 1 Samuel 15:29 speaks of it that way. And he also, the strength of Israel, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And then, of course, there's uh, Titus in the New Testament, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. If your view is that there are errors in the Bible, you have a logic problem. Because you, on the one hand, say God cannot lie, but you're saying there are lies in his word. So there are some problems with that view. And, of course, there's the New Testament verse in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration means God breathed. So as you breathe, we communicate with that breath. And, you know, it's fun. I have a few grandchildren. Some of you have grandchildren, too. And isn't it fun watching a child learn how to talk? You know, and they say the silliest of things. And um, our, our grandkids are the same. You know, they're coming up with these statements every once in a while. Don't Totally don't make any sense, but they're convinced. They're communicating. And sometimes I wonder that as believers, we are praying to God and talking to the Lord and he's looking down and saying, man, you guys are just babbling down there. Just not making any sense, you know. You pray for blessing. You pray for a nice warm summer and then you complain because I give you the warmest summer on record and you say it's too dry and there's a drought. And you start talking about me as if I'm not listening. And that's just a weather prayer that we've all probably prayed on occasion. By the way, just an aside, I love this summer. It was amazing. 
Now, I'm not a farmer, so I'm not in that category. Um, and my garden, well, fortunately, I left it to lie fallow this year, so I didn't have to worry about the watering part of that side of the equation. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. And when you breathe out, you can be just breathing or you can be actually talking. And God's word is meant to communicate, and it's profitable doctrine. Uh, you know, that's a word that's not really got a high favor today. You know, who wants to talk about doctrine? For reproof, that's, uh, you know, admonishing somebody, giving them a strong encouragement. For correction, get us back on track. And instruction in righteousness. The standards of God are all about righteous living. That the man or woman of God may be complete. That means mature. You know, and isn't it wonderful, you know, when the, the kids leave the house and they're going off to college or they're going off to their first experiences of life and you go, oh boy, this is great. I, I see them moving out and making decisions and some of us are going, ah, I'm shedding a tear because now my little boy or my little girl's off on their own, you know. And uh, But they're not mature yet. They say that the average individual doesn't even get their full frontal lobe of their brain till about 25 to 27. Some of us a lot later than that. But uh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, some of us maybe never. <laughs> I speak from experience. Um, that, But we would be complete. That's the whole point of God's word, that we would be complete in him, mature, uh, a man or woman of God, equipped for every good work. And, you know, Learning how to be equipped and having the right equipment for every moment is is really a challenge. And so these um, sections of Scripture remind us that God doesn't lie and what he says is true. We can trust his word. You don't trust your own interpretation. When you find a discrepancy, something that doesn't make sense, you don't say, Lord, I know you made a mistake here. I'm correcting you again. We gotta be careful because that's the road that leads to destruction. So when we talk about these chapters, chapter 7, 1 through 10 of Luke, and then Matthew 8, 5 through 10, you're gonna find there's some differences between those two accounts. Yet we do believe that they are in fact exactly the same circumstance. Now when you read John chapter 4, there are some who would say John 4, 43 to 54 is the same incident again. I've heard it preached that way, that this is the same story. If you want to look at it, make a note, take a look for yourself. But the fact is, there's an awful lot of differences with John chapter 4 and then Matthew and Luke's account. So we don't suggest that that's a parallel. But if you take the scriptures and put them together, and this is what I've tried to do for you with this slide. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'm going to try to read it the way I believe in my understanding of Scripture, it fits together. So when he concluded all these things, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And Luke 7, 2, he, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now you're going to say, wait a minute. Doesn't Matthew say a centurion came to him pleading with him? So how can it be the same? On one account, the, the writer, Luke, records that he sent elders of the Jews. The other account in Matthew says a centurion came to him. How is this possible? Let me share with you a principle of Scripture that was hi- historically based, and that is this. 
When a servant brought a message from his master of his intention, and that message was read out, the historical records put it this way, the servant's word is the master. In other words, when this Roman centurion sent this group to Jesus, he was sending a message. And that message would be pulled out and they would say, this is what the master has said. It's kind of like, I I hate to compare it like this, but it's probably the ancient version of text messaging, you know, where somebody hands you their phone and says, listen, I just got a text message from uh, your uh, husband, and he says, get over here right away. And you go, what? I didn't get that. Just a minute. Oh, yeah, that's him, all right. That's his phone. Wait a minute. Check your phone. Oh, left it off again. (laughs) Has it happened? Of course it has. So he brings the message. And so both are accurate in the historical setting for which they are written. And he said, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. I'm taking that out because that's not part. I'm taking that from Matthew because you don't see that in Luke. By the way, the truthful account, the accurate account, cold case Christianity always put it this way. The writer says, when you investigate the witnesses, don't look for exact parallels on every level, but rather look for the consistency of every level and look for the fact that there are no major obvious contradictions. In other words, does it fit together? And then when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly saying, the one for whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus said to them, I will come and heal him. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends now, second time, he sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy you should enter my roof. Now, Matthew's account says the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy. He sends a second message. He is so insistent that Jesus does not come into the house. By the way, why was he insistent? He knew that ceremonially speaking, he was unclean. We'll get into that in a few minutes. And then, but say the word, my servant will be healed. For I'm a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. I to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. Now, Matthew's account expands from there. And I say to you, many will come from the east and west and sit down at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And those who were sent returned to the house, found the servant well who had been sick, and his servant was healed that same hour. It fits together like glove on a hand. So what did we have lessons from this particular example? First of all, we have the centurion. He had a problem. And the centurion's problem was it's who he was. 
By the way, that's all of our problems. It's who you are. We all have the problem. It's not your occupation. The centurion had his occupation, and that could have been construed as a problem because the centurion, a commander of a 100 men from Rome, was, in fact, a Gentile, a soldier, a conqueror, a dog. Now, I love dogs. I think we all, most of us here are, you know, kind of appreciate a little pup, little puppy. Uh, even the bigger ones when they're, you know, happy, they're, they're great. Get them at barking at 2 o'clock in the morning, that's another story. But uh, this word dog was a term used for those who were outside of Israel, outside of Abraham's descendants. In fact, he had some severe problems because he was going to the God of Israel, but he was a Roman. And as you will be aware, historically speaking, Roman conquered the Jewish nation. They had control. They were the, it was a police state. It was where the centurion was, in fact, the local constabulary. He was the local policeman. He had his own office, his own hundred soldiers. He was in charge of the entire district where he operated. And as a result, he was looked upon with scorn by the natives. I mean, think about it. If you were invaded by a foreign country, how would you feel about the people that were brought in to make sure that everything was continuing according to their plan? You would be a bit upset. Not only was that the case, but this gentleman was, in fact, more than that. He was somebody who had a problem, and it was a second problem. It wasn't just who he was. It was those around him. Now, I love that kind of a problem because it says he had a dear friend who was sick. The word is usually applied to a son, the Greek word, a child. And why that's used for his servant or his slave is this: he was so endeared to this, this young person that he wanted to say, I treat this person as my own flesh and blood. How do you treat people that aren't in your own family? Do you treat them as if they were your own flesh and blood? That's a problem that we need to keep working on as the family of God, isn't it? But it wasn't just that. His dear friend was ready to die. Oh, by the way, Proverbs 17, 17, a good verse to memorize. Friend loves at all times. You know, you can get a friend that kind of loves during the good times. Yeah, let's go party. I'll be your friend. But what about the friend that's there for the tough times, the difficult times? Those are the true friends. Jesus is that kind of friend. His dear friend was ready to die. In fact, as you read the account, you discover that Luke describes him, Luke being a doctor, he describes it in a number of ways, describes him as being uh, paralyzed. His friend was paralyzed, unable to move. The word actually means laid out as if he's ready to be embalmed. One step removed from taken to the mortuary. And this friend was paralyzed, ready to die, sick, but 
Jesus was the one he was going after. He could have gone after his Roman doctor friends. Most legions had doctors amongst them. He could have gone to his foreign Roman gods. Instead, he approaches this man, Jesus. Why? Well, Luke accounts already many things that had taken place. I've listed them by reference, um, Luke 4:33 and 38, 5, 6, 25, and 6:10. A demon had been expelled in the synagogue. A mother-in-law had been cured. There had been a mighty miracle of the catch of fish. The man had been paralyzed, had been brought down through the roof, and he had been not only had his sins forgiven, but he had taken up his bed and walked right in front of everybody. And the man with a withered hand had suddenly had his hand restored. Boy, I tell you, when you get miracles like that going on in your own town, word gets around real fast that there's somebody that can do something about the problems we have. Let me remind you that our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still able to do exceeding abundant above all that we ask or think. So when we have problems, whether they be sickness or other, we should be first and foremost going to him. That is not to exclude the medical profession. Luke was a doctor. But he records more healings than almost any other of the gospel writers. And there's a reason for that. Because even the doctors will sometimes say, I don't know what to do. I'm talking Christian doctors because I've been there. But God, our God, is greater than anything we have to face. And so his dear friend had an answer. And his dear friend knew, the century knew, it's good to have friends. Mm. I'm so thankful that some of you came today. It's nice to be able to preach to people and not to empty chairs. <laughs> Thank you. But even more so, it's nice to know that you are our friends and that we are in a common battle. You know, the Roman centurion had learned that these people in this land, this place that was called a desert, dry, dusty, dirty, hot land that Israel was, this centurion had learned the value of having friends amongst these who had been conquered by Rome. Because he knew that ultimately beneath the, the cultural differences, there were human beings just like us in every culture made in the image of God. And so he had sent the Jewish elders to Jesus. The Jewish elders said he was deserving. This is their statement, not his statement. They also said that he loves our nation. Wow, that's pretty amazing considering he was supposed to be loving the Caesar. For the Caesar was being declared as God. And so, he not only loved the people of God, he loved the nation of the people of God. And had even built a synagogue. Now that's pretty amazing when you think about it. He'd taken from his own personal wealth and he had built a building so that those could worship God. Now, what's really amazing is he couldn't go to that synagogue. He was forbidden to enter into the synagogue. Because their practice was, 
if you're not of the nation of Israel, if you couldn't pull out your genealogical card and show that you had a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather whose name was Abraham, you were not going to be allowed in. I'm so glad that's not the case now. I'm so glad that Jesus said, I welcome everyone the same way. At the foot of the cross, whoso calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This man had built a synagogue. He had done all the things um, that would endear him. Do you know that these elders must have uh, been a little upset at him? Because this is the synagogue where Jesus had performed miracles and they had basically dismissed Jesus as a magician, as a charlatan, and as a heretic. And they were being sent to Jesus to ask for help from Jesus. Boy, talk about swallowing your pride. They were in a pickle because they weren't going to offend this guy. What I mean, you might give some more money. And he was good to them. He kept order in the town. And so they were bringing this message. But the message that he sent, the second part of the message, was don't trouble yourself. That's an expression that means don't sweat it. In other words, Jesus, you don't have to come all the way over here. It's not necessary. Now, that's, a, that's an amazing step of faith that he was exercising right there. You know, if you're, if you're in the healing business, you want to go over and, you know, get right into the house and, and, and lay hands on that person because why? Well, because those who are in the healing business oftentimes are in the money business, unfortunately. And it's not about the healing. If it was about the healing, there'd be no effort on their part and they'd be healing from a distance because that's the way Jesus chose to heal a lot of times. But he, the centurion said, I'm not worthy. The men before him, the Jewish elders said, this man is worthy. He's saying, I'm not worthy. What does that tell you? The approach to God is the humble approach. If you want to get close to God, you start on your knees. I start on my knees. We start falling on our faces and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or as the publican said, the sinner. That's how we approach God. A lot of people have done the, the, the um, prayer of invitation. I call it the sinner's prayer. You probably have heard about it. A lot of young people go through it in their childhood and at camps and youth. And I'm not against doing that. I've led people in the sinner's prayer as well. But the fact is, that can be a sinner's prayer in the head and having nothing to do with the heart because what God wants is our hearts. He wants our lives. He wants all of us. And so, this starts with somebody saying, I am not worthy. Have you ever said that to God? Because if you haven't, you've approached God the wrong way. The scripture is clear. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And he then just says, just say the word. I love it. Just say the word. Oh, if we could only just get to that stage in our own lives, eh? Just say the word, Lord. That's all you have to do. Say it. So matter of fact, why could he do that? Because he was used to being a man under authority. 
And when you're under authority, you can delegate authority. And this man who was a centurion was used to saying to one, centur- one of his soldiers, look at, um, there's a spot over there, there's an old woman, she needs help, I want you to take a platoon over there and clean up around her house. He could do that. He was used to saying it and it was done. And he says, Jesus, you're the same way. You're under God's authority. And if there ever was a man under God the Father's authority, it was none other than Jesus. And you say, well, wait a minute, does that make he's not God? Jesus is God. But the Son was under authority. That's why when we talk about the Christian home, submission is not about being better than the other person that you are being submissive to. It is about recognizing that you are under God's eternal plan. And we are a part of that process. And so God has a plan for each of us. And it's according to his plan. And so just say the word. And he recognized it. Just say the word. You don't have to come into my house. You don't even have to come near my house. I've sent two delegations now. Just say the word. And what happens? Well, he does say the word. The servant is healed that same hour. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Instantly. By the way, just like salvation. There's no progression in salvation. Salvation is as instant as breathing. Now, there's no such thing as progressive salvation. There's progressive sanctification. That is, you do become more like Jesus as you grow in him. But salvation is going from death to life. And the good news is, we were dead, but now are made alive. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. And now we are his workmanship, created for good works. And so, he says, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Wow, that's a powerful verse. I love that verse. Matthew 18, verse 3. Why? Because we need to become more like children. And that means we need to have a childlike faith. I'll never forget, um, it must have been, I think it was my son. He might have been three years old at the time. And uh, he was on a very high ledge. He said, Dad, catch me! And he just jumps. And I'm going, that was like ten feet. And I'm ca- I know I did catch him, fortunately, thankfully. <laughs> he didn't land on me, thankfully. But... Just the same. It was like that instant impulse, I'm jumping. I am trusting. You need to be like that in your walk for God. Not foolish, not presumptuous, let's be careful, but faithful and trusting. And certainly, there's verses that talk about one of our primary goals. And all through the scriptures, one of the primary goals of the believer is to worship Jesus that started at the very beginning beginning in the Christmas season in Matthew chapter 2. They opened their treasures. They presented gifts. They fell down and worshipped him. Matthew 8, the leper came and worshipped him again. Matthew 9, the ruler came and worshipped another ruler. And Matthew 14, verse 33, the disciples came and worshipped him. How are you doing with worshipping the Lord? That's our primary goal, to worship Jesus but the servant was made well. Now, I've got some nice picture of uh, some lightning there, but 
I doubt very much if there was a bolt of lightning that comes down from heaven when that happened. I just happen to like lightning pictures, so forgive me on that point. But uh, the servant was made well. And so too, Romans 5, 6 through 8 says it this way. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was talking to a gentleman last night. He came around. I think he was trying to sell water filters. Nine o'clock at night. Bang, 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 bang on the front door. I thought, man, that's a crazy time to be selling water filters. <laughs> but uh, it gave me an opportunity. I said, uh, hey, I got something for you. He said, what? He says, yeah, how would you like to have um, uh, thirst-quenching water that will never um, leave you thirsty again? And uh, John chapter 4 came to mind. The woman at the well. And so I was able to share with this gentleman. And we got into a kind of interesting talk, if you think of him. Uh, pray for him. His name is Mike. And if Mike's listening right now, we're praying for you. So uh, it's kind of cool the way God gives opportunities. I have this little burned out picture of a school bus that uh, is a bit of a sad picture, but it reminds us again what the love of Jesus does. It's a story of uh, Graham Staines back in 1999 over in India. He was accused by the Hindus of being a zealous evangelical, and at the night, January 22nd, Graham and his two sons, Philip 9, Timothy 7, were a mob set on fire. He and his sons died in the ensuing flames. You see, life won't always necessarily go the way we want it to go, but when you walk through the fires, I am with you. And we cross the rivers, I am with you. And he, the Lord, is with us every step of the way. Pray for India. India is a nation that's going through a lot of problems right now. And the people in Kerala, the nation of India, had severe flooding like they've never had. So pray for them. So what does God want? He wants radical change. Luke 9:57. Someone asked Jesus if he could go along. I'll go with you, he said. Jesus was curt. Are you ready to rough it? We're not staying in the best inns, you know. Now, that's the message, so I hope you know that's not the New King James or the King James. But I think he got the point. And sometimes we're not going to have the easy road. But tell you what, I'd rather have the rough road with Jesus than the easy road without. I hope that you're in that condition as well this morning. And if you're not, you can ask what the jailer of Acts 16 asked. He was also probably a centurion. Another centurion, there's a lot of entrances about centurion. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, uh, the apostle said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. A wonderful verse. It's true as it was then as it is today. Have you ever tasted salvation from Jesus? Have you ever tasted the new life? You can take these words today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's as clear as the word of God is. And so may you trust in him. May we who trust in him be willing to witness for him. And may we go forth from this place encouraged in him. God bless you. We're going to cast the team to come forward and, and do our closing hymn.
Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your presence here amongst us. We pray that you will bless us as we separate. There be amongst this group one or more who have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that this might be their day of salvation. Behold, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. So we pray, Lord, that you will separate us now, lead us home in safety, and again, we thank you for your presence in Jesus' name.